host of The Cell. I invite you to listen to our program every Wednesday night at 7.30 p.m. I would also like to thank you for listening to Community Radio on WGRN LP 94.1 FM, Columbus. I'd like to welcome our listeners back. My co-host for today is Mr. Ernest Kelly and Annie Womack. And we have a real tweet for you today. Our guest is Dr. Pal Desai. Dr. Desai is a hematologist at the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center. She specializes in treating patients with sickle cell disease, and she also serves as director of sickle cell research for the Ohio State University and co-director of the sickle cell program. Hello and welcome, Dr. Desai. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for having me on here today. I have a loaded question for you. I really do. Basically, what I would like to ask you is for our list, explain to our listeners who are not aware of what sickle cell disease is, what sickle cell disease is, what different types of sickle cell are there, and is it something that you catch or is it something that is inherited? So if you could explain that to our listeners, I'd appreciate it. Um, absolutely. So sickle cell disease is an inherited blood condition. Lots of times people hear the term sickle cell disease and they think it's like another disease that you can catch from one another um, just by standing next to somebody or, you know, um, uh, sitting next to somebody. It is not contagious that way. So it is an inherited condition. That means for a person to have the full-blown illness, to have sickle cell, that they have to have one trait from their mother and one trait from their father. And that can be, they can get sickle cell type S from one parent and then anything else from another parent. So it can be another sickle mutation, or it can be a beta thalassemia mutation, or it can be a hemoglobin E mutation. There's hundreds of ways that this has been described to cause sickle cell disease, but essentially any two genes that are abnormal on that same place on both parents, this genes, can lead to sickle cell disease. And I put disease in quotation marks because, you know, again, um, disease, it's not like other diseases that we think about where you can just catch it. Dr. Desai, uh, when did you decide that you wanted to pursue a line of medicine that you're into now? So I think that in some ways it feels like I was always meant to do this. And in other ways, I feel like there are things in my life that built up to it. So my, um, that my first interaction that I can remember with blood conditions is actually my mom. So um, we lived in New York City growing up and they had this program where you could take your daughter to work day. Well, my mom was a lab tech. So she worked in the lab all day. She spun down blood. She looked at slide under a microscope. And so to keep me out of her way and letting her do her work, she would put me at a microscope and give me one of those old fashioned counters. Um, she would give me and let me count the cells all the way to, you know, she said, count a hundred of these and a hundred of these and a hundred of these. And here's what a white cell looks like. Here's what a blood cell looks like. Here's what platelets look like. And so she would put me to work. Um, and then I would fast forward to the age of 13, where 
my family was visiting um, my grandparents in India and my uncle and aunt who had two baby boys were also visiting. We had not met the youngest son yet. Um, and so we were getting ready to meet my cousin, spend a month with the whole family. And I distinctly remember getting there the first night and my aunt and uncle talking about about their youngest son. He was nine months old at the time. And they're like, oh, he's just, he doesn't like to move. He doesn't like to crawl. He doesn't really like to move around too much, but he's so sweet. And so we met him the next morning and with jet lag, I had fallen asleep. And I remember my dad, but I remember before them, my dad examining him and them talking and they took him straight to the doctor that morning. So he had dropped his hemoglobin to four he had an enlarged liver, he had an enlarged spleen, and he didn't know what was wrong. So they didn't know if he had acute leukemia, they didn't know what was going on. It turns out he had a hemoglobin condition. It's called beta thalassemia major. He got his first blood transfusion that day, and he has been on blood transfusions. He used to get them once a month, and now he gets them every three weeks, and he's almost 30 years old. So again, kind of some of these experiences in terms of blood um, with my mother, with my cousin, which was really, it was transformative for our family. We had to think about things like, will he get a bone marrow transplant? What's going to happen to him? And some of the things you hear in sickle cell, right? When you hear, you know, he's not going to live that long. I don't know how long he's going to make it. With the grace of God and with all of the new technologies and all of the new therapies we've had. He's alive. He's doing very well for himself. All the new iron chelation therapies really have been just fantastic for him. But I remember, right? I, I remember him being a teenager and having to hook himself to a pump every night um, to get rid of the iron. So it's been very personal for me in that way to be able to work on hemoglobin conditions and to really see what it's like to live with a um, chronic illness. And then my father's a physician. So again, I feel like all of my life I, I had been kind of coming to this. And really when I got to the adult sickle clinic in the hemonc space, when I actually got there at UNC, I knew I had found a home for myself. I knew that was what I was meant to do. So a really long answer to your short question, but hopefully. <laughs> no, no, thank you. I, you know, that is uh, very informative. I, I wasn't expecting that answer, but I'm, I'm sure glad uh, that you did provide that because I always wonder the work that you guys do. Uh, why did you choose that particular type of medicine to get into? That was great. My, my other question kind of just come up now that you was talking about the both parents have to have the gene. Have they done any studies as to why a family, one, one, one sibling may have sickle cell, but another one doesn't have it at all? Yeah. So um, most of the time, there is usually two parents with trait, meaning they have one gene that makes normal hemoglobin in blood and one gene that has trade where it doesn't form quite right um, for whatever reason. Um, and that can be sickle cell trait, that can be beta thalassemia trait, that can be a lot of different things. And so both parents, usually how this happens is both parents have one functioning gene. So if we go back even to, if you've seen those squares that people draw where each parent can give one thing 
and they can either give the one that functions completely normally or one that doesn't. And to get a person, when you have two parents with trait, you have a one in four chance of having a child with disease. The other, you also have a one in four chance of having a child with two normal hemoglobins that will not have any sort of issues. And then you have a 50% chance or two in four chance of having a child with trait. And so it can happen two parents, exact same parents, you can have one child that has full-blown full sickle cell or full-blown beta thalassemia, and you can have another parent, uh, another child, I'm sorry, that can have absolutely normal hemoglobin. Well, thank you for that. I had to get my questions in now because with Felice and Annie here, I'm not going to be able to get a word in edgewise. So, okay, Felice, I got my two questions in. I was wow. just sitting here thinking about that. I'm like, I know he's going to get Ray say something about, let me get my stuff in for Felice takeover, and she don't let nobody else in on the conversation. <laughs> See, Ernie, I was trying to be good. Now that, now that you then brought it all out, I guess I might as well go ahead and be the way you think I could be. <laughs> I think I think we're gonna get ourselves in trouble tonight. We're having too much fun. <laughs> okay, um, Annie, since uh, he was talking about you, I'm gonna go ahead and let you get your questions in because I don't want him to think wow. I'm hogging up the radio. And don't you get oh, nothing's either. changed. <laughs> yeah, nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. I haven't been here in a while. Nothing has changed. I want everyone to know that she's also our uh, medical advisor for the Ohio. Sickle Cell and Health Association for the Sickle Cell Disease Association of America. And she's also on the MARAC committee, which discusses sickle cell disease through, through COVID and other things that happen, has happened um, over the past two years. And she's been a valuable resource, not just for the state of Ohio and the Ohio State University, but also for the National Sickle Cell Disease Association of America and patients that are out there. So my question to you is, having, having walked this journey like you said, it's personal. And then coming into the Ohio State University, where do you see sickle cell going in the next five years? I mean, having seen, you know, being on these committees and seeing the drugs that are in the pipeline, you know, where do you see sickle cell disease in the sense of, I mean, just where do you see it? What's your take on it for the next five years? I started this journey a little bit over 10 years ago. And, and I can I, I can say, you know, you all have been doing this a lot longer. The combined experience probably is 10 times what I've been doing sickle cell for. But um, even in my short journey, I have seen a dramatic change. It wasn't anticipated and it wasn't expected. Um, but over the past five to seven years, there is momentum. There are medications that work in different ways. There is investment from the pharma side in finding new therapies. We had nothing for how many decades? We had hydroxyurea and no other therapies on the horizon or approved, you know, for, for decades. I, I would say probably at least three decades, right? And and then all about of a sudden- seven, About 70 years, about 70 years. <laughs> right, right. But even hydroxyurea, right? And and, and so since then, yeah. we had nothing. And then all of a mm -hmm. sudden, we get all glutamine. 
we get crizinlizumab, we get voxelator, and we have 40 other drugs in the pipeline that look promising. 40. Wow. 40 trials of drugs. That I mean, that great. that is, that is, it, it gives me chills every time we think about that and talk about that. And then you have, you know, that's not counting bone marrow transplant. That's not counting gene therapy. And so for people even that have been doing this for 40 years or 50 years, I get to talk to them and they see, they feel like we're standing on a precipice. They feel like we're standing on the edge overlooking this brave new world in terms of sickle therapy, which is, I mean, to be part of being able to help come hopefully to fruition and bring it to patients. I mean, we're standing on the shoulders of generations of people and research that have tried to get us here. And to be on that edge of something um, that promising right now is just, it's, it's remarkable to hear. I always am a little cautious, right? Because that part of me, that's the doctor and the researcher, but I'm also the family that is worried and that is scared and that is nervous about what these new things mean. And so I have that little bit of me that, you know, when I heard about the first gene therapy success in sickle cell and in beta thalassemia, and those trials all go together, you know, when you look at them. When I saw that, I mean, again, I was sitting in the audience in the American Society of Hematology meeting in the plenary session surrounded by, you know, thousands of people. And I just, it's kind of like that tunnel, like I could only hear that and I could you know, get excited and get like, oh my gosh, I feel like I'm going to cry because I'm so excited. But at the same time, I want to make sure it's real. Right. And, and, and I think it is, I, but, but, but I, but I want to see the data and I want to make sure that it's everything that people hope and pray that it's going to be. If you guys excuse me for a minute, we need to take an identification break. Hi, this is Ernest Kelly with the Faith Thomas Foundation. You're listening to The Cell on 94.1 FM, WGRN, and WGRN.org worldwide. Listen to us every Wednesday night at 7.30 p.m. I'm glad that we have all these drugs in the pipeline, but I'm also, again, very cautious and to say that, you know, with that one success, how many failures were there? So I'm always asking for that back data on we may have two people that have come through this clinical trial but what about you know you started with a hundred where are they what happened are they better off um you know so i'm always thinking about the rest of the people that don't get aired on television or because um because i know that you know we all know and i don't know if our audience understands that you know just because you may have ss and sc or beta thou everybody's different. So everything doesn't work for everybody. That is why we've been fighting for years to have a shelf full of medication for sickle cell patients because everybody's different. And, you know, and, you know, it's also, it's infuriating for me because you can go to the drugstore, there's 10,000 plus generic plus store brands of cough medicine. You know, you got medication for a group of 30,000 people and we're over 100,000 and they have 
hundreds of medications and we have four. So I'm very, you know, like you said, optimistic, but still very cautious because sickle cell disease is not a one person fit all. It's not a small, medium, large, extra large, 2X. That's not the way it works. So um, I'm definitely looking down the pipeline. I'm definitely asking the questions um, and I'm trying to stay on top of everything because, you know, if we can get 10 more drugs next year, oh my God, how great would that be? So right. um, thank you so much. Yeah. yeah awesome. I, absolutely. No, I, I feel exactly the same way. Um, and we have these conversations often about what's the right fit for the patient at the right time. Because sometimes it can be the same patient, but it's not the right fit for them right then. It's the better fit for them four or five years down the line. Um, and again, there's a balance to the clinical trials too, right? I, I want people that really need new therapies, like they are having complications, but they're not so sick that they can't tolerate new therapy. So there's a balance to be had even in who tries the new therapy first and who tries it second and who tries it, you know, maybe not till later, only because you have to weigh the risks and benefits for each patient at, at each moment. And, and I, and I'm so glad you brought up, Annie, that, um, again, we don't know everything about SC or S-beta plus. There's actually very little data. We don't know much about traits, which is, I mean, why? Because we have, you know. Millions. Of, yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> some, one, some one in every 13 one, households. Right, I yes. know. And so um, the fact that we don't know, I mean, again, the conventional book dogma teaching is that, you know, trait doesn't always have symptoms except in the most severe circumstances. I mean, I know, I know that's what the data says. I know that's what the textbooks say. I always look, I, I, I always say, if you're having complications, let me look at your blood under the microscope because Wait. learning and we're looking and we're trying to understand all of this stuff and what it means in terms of the larger contact because we don't know. And so just being able to say, yes, that's what we know right now and at this moment, but medicine's constantly changing. Is it if you if you you gotta be humble with it. <laughs> what we know today Felice, doesn't hold <laughs> tomorrow. Yeah, Miss Felice, I don't want to take up all the time. I'm just gonna say, you know, again, you know, everybody's genetic makeup is different. And just because right. a person has traits and a person has SSSC, whatever it is, I mean, we're sending, you know, we have kids that are leaving, you know, Columbus, going to Colorado to play football that have traits. And I caution them because that's a different altitude. That's right. a different altitude. Absolutely. So you may be functioning well in Columbus, Ohio, but you get up there in that dense air, who knows what can happen? And I caution right. kids who are going to colder states or coming you know, coming here from Florida. I mean, you know, and they come in here to play football at House State University and they have trade, but they, you know, they're from Florida. They don't have the fourth season that is Ohio, the fifth, the fifth season that is Ohio. So yeah. their body <laughs> has to adjust. I mean, we're just spring, summer, fall in Ohio. Yes. Yeah, we have. <laughs> Oh, the 43 so changes, right. <laughs> in the same day, it could be 90, 60, and 30 in the same day. So, right. who knows? <laughs> Ernie, do you have a, a question based off of what they were just talking about? What? what? Another 10? <laughs> I'm, trying to be, I'm trying to be good, Ernie. <laughs> I'm trying so, to be good. Well, I, I, I do. And, and, and 
you know, just I love what Annie was talking about, you know, the, the different, you know, number of traits. That why I saw an interview you had, Dr. Sauer, you guys do like specialized care for each individual that you see. Is that is that based on that? Is why you yeah. want to look at their blood? We do. We make, um, in terms of treatment plans, really that first visit with us outpatient, we sit down and that's probably one of our longest visits. Um, and, and we sit down and really talk about what's going on. I, I take care of adults. So by the time people come to me, they have years of history, minimally 18 years of history that I still have to learn about. And so again, I say, I know, I know maybe what acute chest is, but what was acute chest to you, right? That's a very different experience. How was your acute chest? Did you get really sick with it? Or did you, you know, stay outpatient? Did you just require some out, outpatient antibiotics? Most of the time people have to be in the hospital for that. So did you need oxygen, extra oxygen? What did that mean for you? So learning about that each individual patient then can tell me what to potentially expect next time and say, hey, this is a person that gets really sick. I mean, they go from zero to needing to be in the intensive care unit within, you know, six hours. That's what happened last time. And so it allows us to kind of develop some individualized plans. And then even in terms of pain, we do try to individualize that therapy and discussion because what works for one person when they get to the emergency room doesn't work for the next person. And so we try to individualize that plan somewhat and try to make sure if the person always itches or gets nauseous with pain medicine, we want to know that too. So try to really personalize that care for patients. Just hearing that, that just sounds frustrating to me that, you know, that it's, it's, it's not one, the same thing as uh, glad that you guys can, you know, keep your heads about you and go about doing your work. Go ahead, Felice. Oh, well, thank you, Ernie. Between you and Annie, I was wondering it's going to be to get in here. <laughs> 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 it's your own show. you going to talk to your own what? show? Yeah, I sure am. Shoot, I couldn't even get in. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't resist it. I couldn't resist it. I do have a question to uh, kind of piggyback off of something that in regards to what you and Annie were talking about. We understand that everybody has a different fit and everything doesn't work for everybody. I was wondering, just even with the trials or even with gene therapy or bone marrow, have you been in the position that you had to tell a patient that they did not qualify or they weren't meeting, they weren't able to meet the standard for them to participate in the trial or if they even wanted to try gene therapy or bone marrow transplant. Do you ever have to say no to somebody? Yeah. Um, you know, we are just starting um, some of those curative therapies. We're very lucky. We have a person, we have now several people that have had experience doing sickle cell bone marrow transplants and sickle cell gene therapy that, are, um, that have come over the last um, little bit to, to Ohio State that, that bring with us that experience and that ability to hopefully provide that service um, as we go forward. In terms of people being candidates, it's tricky 
it's tricky to figure out, again, who's sick enough and who's not too sick that they wouldn't be able to tolerate kind of a lot of the therapies. My patients and I talk about this. They, they talk about, um, what do you think? Do you think I might be able to do gene therapy or not? And we talk about where they are in their illness. Um, and I've, I've made several referrals um, to other centers. I'm hoping that we don't have to do that anymore. I'm hoping that um, here in the short bit, we'll be able to do them personally here. But most of the time, what we talk about are the pros and cons, and then let them at least have that discussion. If they're so sick, for example, for people that are on chronic blood transfusions, one of the big things is that people's iron has to be well managed, right? If they have a ton of iron in their bone marrow, those are not patients that will be able to accept the, the graft. They can't accept gene therapy. They can't accept another person's marrow. Their body will reject it because it's too much iron sitting there and they can't get there. And so some of the conversations I have had is, well, let's start at step one. I want to optimize you to hopefully get you to that point and you can at least go for the referral. But if you go right now, I know that this is too much iron. They're not going to even be able to consider you. So let's optimize your your current issues to be able to get there. But eventually, you know, the ultimate decision usually is made by the person that's going to do that procedure. What I think is um, hard is that balance um, because usually most of my sickle cell patients I've known for years. And so if I could have it my way, every single person would get a transplant, every single person would be cured, and, and, and I would put myself out of work tomorrow if I could. No questions asked. Um, uh, but the reality is even, even after people are cured, they need care. They need care because some of the organ damage that's already happened from sickle cell doesn't 100% go away. They need monitoring after transplant. They need, so again, you need to make sure that you know, A, what you're getting into, and B, that you've optimized your care until that time that we can hopefully get you to that next step, whether that's in a year, whether that's in five years, whether that's in 10 years, whenever this becomes where we can hopefully cure more and more and more patients, we need to be able to get people to that point. Um, and so kind of helping people and setting them up for success now is more what we talk about rather than you're not a candidate or you are a candidate. It's more, let's optimize you so that you can hopefully get there. It's that time again, and I'm hoping that our listeners will tune in next Wednesday at 7.30 p.m. for part two with Dr. Desai and our discussion about sickle cell disease. This is your host, Felice. Peace out. The Faith Thomas Foundation would like to thank you for listening to The Cell. We broadcast on WGRN 94.1 FM every Wednesday night at 7.30 p.m. You can also stream us live on Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. on WGRN 94.1. For more information on the Faith Thomas Foundation, please visit our website, Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is Faith Thomas. F-D-N.